0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 47, entitled Anti-Imperial Christology in Philippians Part 3. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about God's oneness and unity and about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I am your host. In our previous two episodes, we have examined Paul's letter to the Philippians to see if his argument depicted Jesus Christ in a manner which subverted Rome and Caesar. Sure enough, there appeared to be a significant number of texts in both Philippians chapter 2 and 3, which accomplished this very subversion. Last week, in particular, we began to explore the anti-imperial overtones in the massively Christological passage of Philippians 2, verses 5-11. In particular, we noted that Paul's depiction of Jesus Christ subverted the claims of Rome and her emperors by insisting that Jesus is taking over the universal authority which many regarded as belonging to Caesar in addition to noting that the Father has granted this authority to Jesus in a manner similar to how the emperor was granted his authority. This episode will conclude our anti-imperial examination of Philippians 2, 5-11, examining other ways in which the passage portrays Jesus as a figure who subverts Caesar. It might be helpful for our listeners to have the passage fresh in their minds for our study today so I wanted to read it before we get started Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who while existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited but emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of humanity being found in appearance as man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, verses 5-11. As was the case in my previous two episodes, my research for Today's lecture draws upon the work of Peter Oakes in his studies on Philippians. Let's continue our study of Jesus and Caesar in Philippians 2, 5-11 with these three points. Our first point today is that harmony and peace are brought about in light of Jesus' universal authority. Harmony and peace. We've already suggested that the reference to every knee one day bowing to Jesus and every tongue admitting that he is the true Lord in Philippians 2, 9-11, was deliberately undercutting the truth claims about the Roman emperor. Of course, when there is universal authority and submission to a human Lord, then it implies that salvation has been accomplished among those involved. Peace and safety was a slogan heralded by participants in the imperial cult as was noted in our previous study of 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 3. So the salvation instituted by Rome was closely linked with the empire's peace and harmony. The link between Rome's salvation and the peace that it ushered in was made by many intellectuals in the first century. Philo, the Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, Egypt, put it in these terms. Quote, The whole human race exhausted by mutual slaughter was on the verge of utter destruction, had it not been for one man and leader Augustus, whom men fitly call the averter of evil. This is he who not only loosed but broke the chains which had been shackled and pressed so hard on the habitable world, who reclaimed every state to liberty, who led disorder into order. He was also the first and greatest and the common benefactor in that he displaced the rule of many and committed the ship of the commonwealth to be steered by a single pilot. It is not well that many lords should rule." That is Philo in his document, De Legation ad Gaium, verses 144 through 149, translated out of the Loeb Classical Library. There we can see that Philo makes the connection between Augustus's lordship and the order that he brought to disorder. He also noted that Augustus brought liberty and averted evil. There we can see that for Philo, the Roman emperor was not just someone who established his rule, but also established the harmonious peace in the empire. Speaking of Augustus, the Priene inscription in Asia Minor celebrated his victory with the following description, quote, He has given a different aspect to the whole world, which joyfully would have embraced its own destruction if Caesar had not been born for the common benefit of all. Therefore, people would be right to consider this to have been the beginning of the breath of life for them, end quote. There we can see that for Augustus, he is the one that brought about the common benefit of all people who without Augustus would have embraced their own destruction. Thereby, he is the one who breathes life into the people within his empire. Thus, that is the harmonious peace of life, because he has brought peace to a divided world. Seneca, the Latin philosopher and moral advisor to Emperor Nero, the emperor who ruled during the writing of Philippians, wrote that without Caesar's wisdom and direction, the people, quote, would crush and cripple itself within its own power, end quote. That's Seneca in De Clementia, chapter 1, paragraph 3, verse 5. There we can see that Seneca noting that without the emperor's direction, without the emperor's wisdom, and without the emperor's ruling leadership, the people would have crushed themselves. They would have crippled themselves with their own power, thus the emperor brings direction, brings harmony, and brings peace with his rule. Probably the most persuasive quotation that links the salvation of Rome with peaceful harmony comes from Diotogenes, a Pythagorean philosopher. He notes that, quote, Now the king bears the same relation to the city as God to the world, and the city is in the same ratio to the world as the king is to God. For the city, made as it is by a harmonizing together of many different elements, is an imitation of the order and harmony of the world, while the king, who has an absolute rulership and is himself animate law, has been metamorphosed into a god among men. As in Diotogenus in his strobe chapter 4 verse 61 it's important to note the connection that this author makes of the earthly ruler to being a god among men specifically because this ruler brings about harmonizing peace among the people of the city that god does for the entire world in short the ideal ruler brings peace and harmony to his kingdom and many within the Roman Empire regarded Caesar as the one who has indeed ushered in this era of peace and harmony. So for Paul to argue that it is the risen Lord Jesus Christ who is due the bowing of every knee and the confession of every tongue, it indicates a time when there will be no wars or disasters that will divide the people from making such a universal confession. If every knee will bow, then the people are not split on whether they should give allegiance to Caesar or Jesus. Rather, the exaltation of Jesus begins an era of peace and reign that will culminate in every person acknowledging Jesus' rightful position as Lord of the world, a world which will be at that time in peace and in harmony with Jesus' rule and reign. Our second point today is looking at the naming of Jesus in Philippians 2 and verse 9. There we're going to look at the naming of Jesus. Upon Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, God bestows upon Jesus the Father's authoritative name. This name indicates that God has shared His rule, authority, and divine privileges with the exalted human being Jesus. This, by the way, is why the most exalted descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament are depictions of Jesus after his resurrection and exaltation. The Roman emperors also operated in a system with shared names, bearing authority, power, and the right to rule. Although Augustus was considered to be the first Roman Emperor his name was regularly passed upon his descendants as an authoritative title the name Augustus was linked with almost all of the Julio-Claudian emperors and it appeared widely on thousands of coins in addition to numerous inscriptions in addition to the authoritative name Augustus the title father of the country Or father of the fatherland was bestowed upon almost every Roman Emperor in the first century as a reminder the ruling Emperor was understood as the son of God with God being his deified father the former emperor so the implication would be that the title father of the fatherland being bestowed upon the ruling son of God indicated a passing of authority often from a father to a son. Therefore, for Paul to regard the authoritative name that God the Father gave to the risen Lord Jesus as the name above every name, this is clearly a subversive jab at the Roman emperor. For the emperor himself was the only person in the Roman Empire who could ever be described as the one bearing the name above every name. In light of the Jewish principle of agency, God can invest his principal agents with his authoritative name, and this is exactly what Paul describes in Philippians 2.9. For Paul and his Philippian converts, the authoritative name was not Augustus. It was Yahweh, and Yahweh shares this name, the name above every name, with the exalted human being Jesus. Therefore, the emperor of Rome does not truly possess the authority of the father of the fatherland. It is the risen Lord Jesus who has received this name from the true father, God the father. This point is almost certainly why Paul notes in Philippians 2:11 that submission of the peoples to Jesus is to the glory of God the father. Our third point today is that Jesus defines the ethics of his followers with his example. Jesus defines the ethics of his followers with his example. The Christological passage of Philippians 2, 5-11, is not merely a depiction of the person of Jesus. It begins with an ethical imperative for Paul's readers to, quote, have this attitude among yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, end quote, That is in Philippians 2 verse5. In other words, Paul expects his readers to take to heart the act of Jesus as something that can tangibly be emulated and followed. Jesus' example defines the ethics of his followers. The same was said of Caesar, namely, that Caesar's example shaped and formed the ethics of his people. A variety of first-century authors admit this point, so they are worth quoting in full. Plutarch, the famous first-century author and biographer, put it in these words, But just as a rule, if it is made rigid and inflexible, makes other things straight when they are fitted to it and laid alongside it, in like manner the sovereign must first gain command of himself, must regulate his own soul, and establish his own character, then make his subjects fit his pattern. End quote. That is Plutarch in his document Ad Principum Inner Dudium, 780, verse B. There we can see there that Plutarch is pointing out that the ruler has to first regulate his own behavior and then he will make his subjects fit this example, fit this pattern. The historian Vilius Paterculus writes in regard to the emperor Tiberius that, quote, Fair play has now precedence over influence and merit over ambition, for the best of emperors teaches his citizens to do right by doing it. And though he is greatest among us in authority, he is still greater in the example which he sets End quote. That's Philius Paterculus in his history, Book 2 chapter 126 verse 4. Likewise, the Latin philosopher Seneca wrote in regard to the Emperor Nero that, quote, We are pleased to hope and trust, O Caesar, that in large measure this will happen, that kindness of your heart will be recounted, will be diffused little by little throughout the whole body of the empire, and all things will be molded into your likeness. It is from the head that comes the health of the body. It is Seneca in his document De Clementia, book 2, chapter 2, verse 1. There we can see with all of these writers, there was a widespread understanding that Caesar served as the moral example for his people. The emperor of Rome defined his people by his ethics, which the people were to follow. So when Paul argues that his Philippian readers should follow in the example of Jesus, this was almost certainly a deliberate subversive swipe at caesar's legitimacy to be the defining example of the people the philippians were to forego their allegiance to nero and give full fidelity to jesus and were to thus follow in the ethical example set forth by jesus this by the way is another persuasive indicator that paul's description of jesus in philippians 2 5-11 is not about some pre-existent god or angel who gave up divinity in order to become a lowly human being for that example would be impossible for the philippian readers to ever emulate instead jesus is the human messiah who refused to exploit his privileges choosing instead to take the attitude of the isianic suffering servant in obedience to god The act of giving up one's privileges in order to serve others in obedience to God was surely a tangible ethical example for the Philippian converts who were holding on to their Roman privileges and benefits to follow in light of the example set forth by Jesus in his earthly ministry. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, number one, Paul's description of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, 5-11, subverted the Roman emperor in many ways, thus drawing his readers unto sole allegiance with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. The universal authority, which many felt ushered in an era of peace and harmony, did not belong to Caesar, but instead to Christ. Number two. We saw that Paul further subverted Caesar in favor of Jesus by highlighting the authoritative name bestowed upon Jesus by God the Father. The successive Roman emperors would receive the authoritative name and title of Augustus and Father of the Fatherland, legitimating their rule. However, Paul insists that it is Jesus who has received the authoritative name from God, and that this God was the true Father, empowering the true risen Lord, Jesus Christ, with authority and dominion. Number three, we observe that in the Roman Empire, where Caesar acted as a moral and ethical example that was to define his people, Paul argues that Jesus Christ, who gave up his messianic privileges in order to serve others and obey God, was the one who sets the real example for the Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 5-11 through deliberately undercuts Caesar's claim to harmonious peace, his authoritative name, and his role as the moral example of the people in favor of the human being, Christ Jesus. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us with a small donation. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.